and the Oscar goes to... Wings! Paramount presents Wings, the first movie to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. The story of two men who have gone to war and the girl they left behind. Starring Clara Bow, the It Girl, Gary Cooper, Buddy Rogers, and Richard Arlen. Wings is a whopping air spectacle, dominated by remarkable aerial stunts. Filled with action, shock, thrills, and tragedy. Twists of fate in love and war that catapult three people to their destinies. One of the greatest silent motion pictures ever made. Wings. Ciao my people and welcome to our very first episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast where we travel through time reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard if you will. It will be quite a journey and naturally I could not undertake such a journey by myself. I am of course your Italian DJ Nick and I have two incredibly talented podcasting partners with me. Not to mention you guys out there would probably be bored to death just hearing me blabber on by myself. So let's introduce our, my two great co-hosts. On one hand, we have the fantastic Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing? I am fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And, and on the other, we have the fantabulous Zan Sprouse. Hey, Zan, how are you doing? Doing well, Nick. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's great to hear. And, and ladies, today, you know, it's wonderful that we finally get to start this project. You know, the, the three of us have been talking about for some time. We finally get to unveil and start this, this podcast. And I'm so super excited and just, you know, cannot thank you both enough for, for wanting to join me today. And so, you know, as we, of course, had mentioned, we are going to be going back where it all began to the very first movie to ever win an Oscar for Best Picture, 1927's Wings. Directed, of course, by William A. Wellman, who would then go on to win another Oscar 10 years later for Best Original Story for A Star is Born. And it is a silent movie, so the titles were by Julian Johnson and the music was by J.S. Zamanichik, who was very well known for a lot of photo play music for silent movies at the time. This incredibly influential film cost around $28 million to put it in today's money. Um, and it has, of course, a runtime of two hours and 24 minutes thereabouts. So for you non-silent movie fans, this could have been hard to sit through. But before we get into the characters on the board, ladies, and some of the main themes and key scenes, what were your first impressions when you sat down to watch this film? And did you have any trivial facts you wanted to share with us? Let's start with you, Zan. This really impressed me. It's like a lot of silent films. It, it isn't the greatest dialogue. It's not necessarily the greatest love story or anything like that. But this was one heck of a spectacle. And I just remember watching it and thinking, wow, they like filmed these planes. This is 1927. They had these <laughs> propeller planes and then they had other ones up in the sky to film the propeller planes. So it was quite impressive as a spectacle. And uh, Nick, you mentioned the music and I'm, I'm glad you did mention it because uh, William Wellman is director of one of my all-time favorite movies, which is The Public Enemy, hmm. which interestingly enough also 
very prominently features the song I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, which is featured in this one as well. So I remember watching this thinking, he must like that song. Now we've got two movies with that in there. And also my impression of this one, this was a little bit racy. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later, but this was pre-code, so it got a little racy in places. So I, overall, I was pretty impressed with this one. Mm. And, and what about you, Rachel? I assume this was also a, the first time you got to sit down and watch this film as well. This was the first time I've ever seen this movie. This is the first time I've ever seen this type of movie. I've never watched a silent film before in my entire oh, really? life. Yes. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, so I was quite nervous, actually, um, because I do have a habit of multitasking when I'm doing <laughs> Anything yeah, do that with the silence. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm really going to have to pay attention to the screen. Um, it genuinely surprised me. Um, there were the uh, production of it um, is very impressive considering the time period. Um, and just the general what i assumed silent movies were like this totally took some of those preconceived notions and blew them right out the window it was so not what i was expecting in a good or a bad way rachel because i'm a big silent movie fan so um I'm, I'm curious as to what kind of preconceived notions that you had that you were that you said were blown out of the window were they good or bad that they were the jury's still out, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought I, I for some reason I genuinely thought that like anytime somebody moved their lips, like one of those title cards would come up. Yeah, no. It doesn't. Yeah. They're barely used. There's a lot of times where I'm like, I need to practice my lip reading or get a better gist of body language. Like you really have to pay attention to not just what the people are saying, quote unquote saying, but their facial expressions and how they're interacting with each other and their environment. Yeah, there are often times where you'll be watching going, okay, what did you say? Because this sounds like a really intricate situation. And the title card just said, oh dear, after you talked for three weeks. (laughs) Yes. This this is very true. I mean, I have to admit, you know, that I very much have a penchant for black and white films and silent ones too. I mean, I was, you know, I'm a big fan of Charlie Chaplin films and more than I was Nosferatu is one of my favorite horror movies of all time, which of course came out in 22. So five days, five years before this. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I laughed, I was moved and I was all around excited, you know, taking into account though, that I am not a fan of aviation films. I mean, because one of them, I have a, there's a best friend of mine who's a huge Top Gun fan and he hates me because I can't get into Top Gun. Um, <laughs> so I was a little bit worried with this. I was like, ah, aviation, I don't know. But, but I actually really, really enjoyed it as it does. Of course, we do get a lot of the flying and stuff, but I think it goes beyond just the whole aviation deal where maybe it's probably a, more of a bigger deal in Top Gun. Um, but I also thought, I don't know about the two of you, I've almost found some rather almost Shakespearean themes in this, like the unrequited love, like the Midsummer Night, like in the Midsummer Night's Dream, or the tragic killings of people who are believed to be foes. It was very, I think, in, ingrained in the classic kind of story tropes. Very much so. It had the, like you said, it had the classic two men after the same girl and you sort of get the impression that they are 
almost wanting to impress her with their enlisting when the war starts, when they both go to her house and they think each of them thinks they're going to get her picture to take with them to war. You get the feeling that they come with their chest puffed out like, hey, I'm going to war. What do you think of me? Check me out. And the and like you said, the the realization that you have killed a friend instead of a foe and the tragedy that lies there and then you have the the girl off to the side who actually does save the day but doesn't get the credit for it. <laughs> you have a lot of those classic storytelling tropes, I guess oh, for lack of a better term. Oh yes indeed. And, and so let's get to our main players on the board here. Once I think pretty much stood out, I, I believe probably for, for all of us, I would let's start with one of our leading guys here, Charles Buddy Rogers as Jack Powell, who was a huge star of the 20s and 30s. So what did the two of you make of the character of Jack Powell and, you know, America's boyfriend? Let's start with you, Rachel. What were your thoughts on Jack Powell? Um, he, he seemed a bit, like, he definitely seemed like, you know, the good old, like, you know, baseball playing boy next door type where you know he's good friends with this girl that is obviously in love with him and he's completely oblivious and he's head over heels for the the girl that's not the hometown so i don't know if that makes her more exotic or whatever she's from the big city oh yeah Um, she has it over the other girls because she's from the city yes (laughs) (laughs) um but he seems like he he seems kind of I don't know, kind of he- it, almost literally head in the clouds. Like he's just got this dream of he wants the girl and he wants to fly and nothing's going to stop him. And um, his his character arc from the beginning of the movie to the end is interesting because he obviously does a lot of growing up. I mean, he seems, I'm, ass- I'm assuming that he and the other main lead, David are supposed to be about the same age, but at the beginning it seems like uh, David is maybe a little bit older, a little more sophisticated, um, and then you've got Jack, who's just Jack. <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is very much, I guess, your regular Jack, I suppose. And what, what were your impressions on on Jack Powell, Zan? Jack, to me, was very much blind to everything that was in front of him. Uh, you know, Mary being having having such eyes for him, and she is literally the girl next door that he has so much in common with. She likes to drive the cars with him, and she's interested in his hobbies, and she's there, and she's very. And even he says, you know, are you? Can you just leave me alone for once? And you, so you get the feeling that she's just been there next door in love with him since they were probably like five years old. So he's blind to her, and he's. You know, like you said, Rachel, he's he's got his head in the clouds. He wants he's working on the car because he really wants to fly. I mean, he he wants the fast car because it's the closest thing he can get until the war starts. And even when he goes to Sylvia's house, he's just he's got the blinders on for Sylvia, even though it's kind of obvious that she doesn't have it for him. She's very cold and she doesn't know he's coming. There's a locket there with her picture in it. Like, like, oh, I didn't expect you to have this ready for me. Yeah, because it's not for you. So I think he was very blunt. And even even when, you know, I guess, you know, I, you don't have spoiler alerts for a 
movie that's almost 100 years old. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even when he shoots down David, when David steals the Fokker and is trying to get back to the Americans, he's... He's he's looking at him and moving his head around, and screaming like, "Come on, look at me! Look at see that it's me!" See that, and he just he just can't. He's so blind, blindly hating the Germans that that's all he sees. And I feel like his character. Yes, I agree with you, Rachel. His character does grow, but I feel like his character gets let off the hook a little bit more than it deserves. Oh yeah, yeah. You know I, where he I just. Have- yeah, we'll get to. I'm sure we'll, we'll get, get to, to that. I, I, you know, I have issues with the way this movie ends. Yes, <laughs> a lot of levels. Yeah, I yeah. think. Oh, okay. I think he grows, but I think he. I think part of his growth would have been learning to live with the loss yeah. on a grander scale. If this were the real world, I think he gets let off the hook yeah. for a lot of things. He doesn't deserve to be let off the hook for. It's very true. I mean, I think, you know, what you what you were both saying, I mean, I thought it was a very interesting character. And I, I suppose he might also represent that naivete of those, you know, brave fellows that headed off to flight in this most monstrous war the world had ever seen at that point in time. And unfortunately, the state still remembers one of the most horrendous wars the world has ever seen. You can very, I mean, I agree, he's very much the happy-go-lucky guy who sees the idea of enlisting as an incredibly romantic and exciting notion. And, you know, um, also, I guess, having myself studied World War I poetry prior with folks going off, it was seen very much as almost a romantic war for many. And the romance of, you know, going out there and doing your duty and everything else. And But, you know, I think since the 20s, we guys, you know, looking from a man's perspective, have not evolved that much as we cannot see when a woman is clearly in love with us and is doing everything she can, even in possibly a not particularly subtle way to let us know as Mary does with Jack. And for some reason, you know, like you were mentioning, Zan, he's completely delusional because he has the, his object of desire, Sylvia, who's um, and he's completely over, head over heels for her, but she doesn't give him the time of day. Now, I was just like, why does he continue to, you know, delude himself that she's even interested? I mean, I was actually wondering what the two of you felt about this is, do you think that he knows that she's not interested and is happy just lying to himself? Or or did you think that he really is that delusional? I think he's that blind. I, I think he wants what he wants and he has blinders on to everything else. And I think she's nice to him. And... Rachel, like you were saying, he's kind of young, he's kind of sheltered, and so I think he's, like like you said, Nick, a lot of other guys who haven't changed that much, that they, they oh, a girl is nice to me, she must like me. You know, all those, all those guys we know who think that the girl at Starbucks has a crush on him because she knows his name. Well, that's her job to know your name. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think he really just does kind of, kind of have the blinders on about it, and I, I, just a quick little funny aside on this i watched this movie with my father and when it started he said this movie's stupid who doesn't have the hots for clara bow (laughs) yeah yeah no offense to the the gal that plays sylvia but really uh i think mary's the prettier of the two (laughs) she 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 is the it girl ladies and gentlemen so um but yeah i think i think he's really that delusional what do you think rachel oh yeah 
Absolutely, I, and I and I think it. I think it probably does come from a place of, of sheltering. I mean, we don't really get any backstory for any of these any of these characters, other than the fact that apparently at one point Mary ended up in a bonfire <laughs> for some reason, and Jack <laughs> saved her. Um, but I don't know the story there. I mean, you obviously. Yeah, you obviously know he likes her. I mean, he comes like nobody says anything bad about Mary. He's, he's I mean, I think yeah, he, he's, yeah, yeah, he likes he's her, but he doesn't friends with her. Yeah, he doesn't get it. Yeah, but he's this yeah. you know middle class. We could assume probably these guys are from somewhere in the middle of the United States, probably Midwest. Um, and you know, compared to David who is obviously upper class, more wealthy, has probably traveled the world more, has probably a higher education. I was thinking the exact same thing. He's probably a little more educated. He's probably seen a little more, which is why he's a little more in tune with what's going on around him. Yeah. Um, And also, I felt, uh, you know, fun fact actually about Buddy Rogers is at the time he had never tasted alcohol in his life. At age 22, I mean, the guy was 20 when he did this, and he was actually drunk from drinking the champagne during the scene in the in France at the Café de Paris. I mean, uh, and which I thought was fantastic. It's amazing that you know that it was actually you because know, a lot of times you know when you get people be getting drunk and stuff, you it's often you know just acting, and you know people are just drinking water or iced tea if they say they're drinking whiskey or whatever. But he was actually genuinely drunk, and you know to to carry on here a little bit about the um, about the character of Jack and I think the bubbles scene, which I think is a pretty important scene in this film. Um, and you know you. You brought that up uh, as well, Zan. What did you guys think of, of the bubbles scene and, you know, this kind of, shall we say this, um, how drunkenness is shown and also how, you know, maybe soldiers carousing and what have you. What did the two of you make of that? I loved that scene because I thought it was a great use of special effects. I think one of the problems that a lot of early film has is that it's filmed like you're filming a play. You put your actors in front of your camera and you let them go. And you have some pioneers that, you know, like you mentioned, Murnau and um, like Georges Melier, who did things a little bit differently with special effects. But I think this livened it up a little bit. And, yeah, like you said, with the drunkenness, there's always been this sort of cliche with drunkenness, especially in silent films where someone's just stumbling around. There's a muted trombone being played, so it sounds, you know. And But this was a little more just with the bubbles coming out of the tuba and the bubbles coming out of the bedpost. (laughs) I thought that was wonderful. And like you said, this was his first time ever being drunk, which is... First of all, fascinating. Second of all, really, again, reminds you, this is pre-code because that is not legal anymore. You do not have alcohol on, on movie sets anymore in, in, that, in that capacity for this very type of reason. So it is, I, I like that he was drunk because it does give it, and especially an actor who's never been drunk, how are they going to act drunk? They're, well, they're going to act drunk like they've seen it in vaudeville or cartoons or something. And so it's a more genuine reaction and like i said you have those great special effects and again this movie's a little a little bit racy where you've got you know they are obviously going to go home with some of those french hookers and <laughs> and then you know of course mary having to change out of her dress cut to the navel back into her uniform and she's and you know claire bow's naked there i mean she's got her top off you see her bare oh, yeah. back in this movie. oh yeah and not to mention her first, you know, the first shot of her is her peeking out through a pair of petticoats on the 
clothesline. You know, that I think it just I, I think it's a it's a very tasteful raciness. And I, I liked I really did like the bubble scene. What, what did you think of the bubble scene, Rachel? Did you enjoy it? I thought it was quite entertaining. I I was genuinely giggling along with Jack as he was, you know, as bubbles were appearing, like the big bubble that comes out of the tuba and um, all of that. It, it Obviously, this came first, but it kind of reminds me of the scene in Dumbo when Dumbo gets drunk. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pink elephants. Literally my favorite song yes. from Dumbo is Pink Elephants. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, the the whole France Paris you know nightlife bit is is definitely a good change of pace because at this point we've seen you know this you know bits of World War One you know we started to see some of the horrific um, you know things that are coming out of this this great war and like the movie says you know these guys have have seen some things and they need to unwind they need to forget what they've what they've seen obviously nowadays we know that PTSD and all, you know all those things are thing back then they wouldn't they would just been like oh you know i've seen some horrific things and i just want to forget i just want to let loose and that's obviously what they're they're doing by getting so drunk and probably relieving some tension with those hookers. Um, yep. You know, and it's it's shot really well, you know, with the special effects with the bubbles is is really cool. Um, that opening shot that cuts through across, you know, it, it zooms in essentially, but goes across all these tables of different people. Um, and you can see different combinations of different character types um of you know the parisian nightlife which was really cool and i know that's a shot that wellman really wanted to get but he had to essentially figure out a way to dolly the camera which hadn't mm-hmm. really been a thing um so it's it's a good change of pace compared to all the battle and war related stuff it's a bit long in my opinion, it really could have been cut down quite a bit and probably would have given us some breathing room for probably a bit more character development for both of our leads and that ending. Give us some more to that ending. And, and maybe something for Mary, too. Um, Rachel, yep. I'm going to warn I'm going to warn you. Yeah. It was a little bit long is something you're going to say with almost every silent movie you watch. Yeah. <laughs> so, just fair warning. Yeah. I when I saw the runtime, I'm like, I was like, are silent movies really this long? Oh yes, <laughs> they really go two plus hours for silent films. Like, let me introduce you to a gentleman named D. W. Griffith who did yes. not know what editing was. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is true. I mean, I I also was a huge fan of the bubble scene myself. I thought it was actually really really great. And you know, and the two of you made made some fantastic points on that uh, on that scene. Indeed, I do agree with you, Rachel. It was maybe a little bit long, but I suppose also the pacing in the twenties was something that had to kind of was luckily was made better as time progressed. Um, so we did talk about him a little bit. Let's get to who will eventually become Jack's best friend and the man whom he kills thinking he's avenging him, Richard Arlen as David Armstrong. So what were your thoughts on the, on this particular character? Uh, let's start with you, Rachel. What were your thoughts? Um, he, he definitely brings a different personality. You know, compared to Jack, David is definitely... 
Um, like I said, he's he's obviously more well off. He comes from a higher class family, um, has been raised a certain way. You know, when we see him saying goodbye to his parents, like the butler shows more emotion to him leaving than his own father does, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, but at the same time, kind of appropriate. We've seen characters portrayed like that before where, you know, you just don't show emotion. You just, you know, it's like, goodbye, father. I'm leaving off to war now. Um, <laughs> um, so um, he, he definitely brings a, a different vibe uh, to the dynamic between him and, and Jack. Um, and I'm glad that they were able to uh, figure out a way in this story for them to go from being these two guys that know of each other because they live in the same town and they're both going after the same girl to working out their differences uh, in literal fisticuffs to becoming best friends. Um, uh, Richard Arlen, there were several times where he would make these facial expressions and he reminds me so much of Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> is kind of eerie. Uh, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, what did you make of of, of, of Richard of um, the, uh, Richard Arlen's and did you like him? I thought this character was very interesting because he had a much calmer temperament, and you know probably something that he learned from his father to keep a more of a cool head. And this character actually reminded me a little bit of the character of James Apperson in uh, the nineteen twenty five World War One picture called The Big Parade, starring one of my all-time favorite actors, John Gilbert, mm-hmm. where in that, where John Gilbert is very, you know, all the young men, it's the, you know, the war is coming, everybody's going to enlist, and he enlists, and he goes home, and he tells his father, and his father is all, what the hell is wrong with you? No son of mine is going to be an enlisted man. <laughs> you just very, where the, you know, where now, I think we're used to seeing characters where they tell their father, hey, I'm going to go to war, and their father's like, apple pie, good for you, son. And but back then it was almost this the upper crust that was not what they did, you know, they because you know, in the big parade, his father's actually trying to keep him out of the war and he goes and enlists and he's like, But what the hell's wrong with you? So it reminded me a little bit of that. You have this more this more upper crust character with a little more style, a little more education, and I think that he never felt i what i thought was most interesting about his character was that he never felt the need to prove jack wrong you know when you have the scene where they're talking about you know hey i just want to be honest with you but you know i i think sylvia is my girl and i think she loves me too and he's just sitting there thinking yeah okay i'm just going to give you this one because he knows that you know, he's gotten the letters from Sylvia saying, oh, my God, Jack's still writing to me. I think he loves me. But, you know, I only love you and you know that. And when the locket falls apart and he sees the back of the picture, he's not showing it to Jack like, ha, look, this was supposed to be mine. So I thought that his cool temperament was a very nice contrast to, to Jack's all over the place, bubbling over type of character. 
Mm, well, I mean, you know, I feel is, you know, what kind of I feel makes or breaks a silent movie is, of course, the facial expressions. And I think Richard is one of these actors that's just perfect in that sense. You know, we gather, like the two of you were pointing out that he is one of the rich bachelors, as it were, that probably all the women want, you know, among these, of course, Sylvia, who is, of course, the object of contention between Jack and Dave. I actually got the impression of a very austere and serious man, you know, like you were, you guys were pointing out, who maybe unlike Jackie, I think he wants to serve as he almost feels it's his duty to serve his country rather than have the more romantic ideals that Jack has. And also, I get, we, guess, we get, I guess, the picture of the incredibly devoted son to his parents. And I got the impression of he's pretty much like the straight arrow who doesn't really indulge in any sort of pleasures that his money may allow him to. And Almost like almost a very noble guy, very like, you know, I'll never, you know, I'll steer clear from all the various um, temptations that life might throw at me. That was the impression I, I kind of got, but definitely a wonderful character. And so as we mentioned, we talked about both of them. Let's talk about what is probably the biggest relationship in this film, the one between Jack, Jack and Dave. And also we actually got a same sex kiss in this film, which seems to be pretty common in the 20s. Um, so when it came to the relationship between Jack and Dave, what did you guys think of that? Uh, Zan, were you happy with this relationship? It, I, I think it was a, sort of a classic relationship that, you know, all's fair in love and war type of a situation that they, you know, they have their fisticuffs and it's like, hey, you know what? You, you, you kicked my butt and you're okay, pal. And they, they come together in war because you can't let things like love separate you in war. So I liked that. And I liked that they had each other, that they had each other from back home. And then, you know, and, and David had someone he could talk to and say, Hey, listen, if I don't make it, I need you to go back to my mother and give her my bear. And, you know, they, they had, they were there for each other for that because you knew with those types of conversations, one of them wasn't making it out of this movie. <laughs> so, so it was nice that they had each other. And again, I, I mentioned this earlier. I do think this is the first in a series of Jack being forgiven way too easily. Mm. Um, where you were talking about the, the same sex kiss where they are, where David is dying and Jack is holding him and, trying to say, you know, I didn't know I had, he's like, no, you, it's not your fault. It's war. It's what happens. And, you know, I know I personally would be like, you bastard. <laughs> How did you, what, what the hell? But um, I, I think at, at that point, that's the one that I feel is even remotely justified. The, the forgiveness that I feel is remotely justified because they really did become brothers during their experiences in the war. Mm -hmm. And so I, I liked that they had each other for each other. Well, it is a very brotherly relationship indeed. And Rachel, what did you make of the relationship between our two leads? Um, I think it was, I don't know if adorable is the right word to use. Um, it was just, it was nice to see the, like I said, that they, um, you know, the these days, scriptwriters could easily feel like they need to drag like this rivalry along probably way too long um but um they didn't and even though they end up having another little bout of uh tension between them that at the end when they're finally reunited that they are able to make amends and 
um, I guess, forgive each other for their transgressions uh, before David dies. Um, the 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 kiss, it didn't really phase me at that point because um, I think it was when David was leaving, and then I think we see it again when Jack comes home um, and gets his big hurrah heroes welcome back to his hometown that whenever these guys kiss anyone it's for in my opinion an uncomfortably long time for (laughs) it to not be a romantic person of interest like jack kisses his mother a few times when he comes home and that's quite a long lip lock for kissing your mother (laughs) um right So when they were getting the awards um, from the French and the guy was, you know, the French, you know, we're used to the French giving the quick kissy kissy on each cheek. This guy is like smacking a big one on each of their neck, on each side of their neck. All these guys is giving these awards to. So I don't know in 1927 what what they thought kissing was. But just kissing in general in this movie is just weird. Uh, <laughs> so when when Jack is, you know, essentially kissing his friend goodbye, it's like, eh, okay, whatever <laughs> at this point. So there, there was definitely a lot of love in this film. I will say yes. that much. A lot of, lot of loving going on. Um, but, you know, I when it came to a relationship myself, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology, and I very much got an Achilles Patroclus kind of camaraderie without of course the pederasty which those two have but um i really that's the kind of impression i almost got you know the two do share a kiss when david's about to die which you know i thought was a little bit odd but i guess you know it's kind of that whole brotherly kiss of like you know my brother's dead and all this kind of thing so i can i can i can see that i mean because you know if you look at it i guess with today's eyes like wow this movie was so forward thinking um but i must admit that even though we're dealing with a silent movie the continued exchange between the two of all set okay was so moving even if it was just words on the screen and i thought it was fun that at first the man whom jack perceived as his rival in love for sylvia ended up becoming his best friend after the two had had that round of fisticuffs I also, I I will agree with you, Rachel. It's absolutely an adorable relationship because it's a beautiful brotherly relationship. And I was actually hoping till the end that Dave would make it out alive. But, you know, as Zan was pointing out, one of the two was going to die. You knew that pretty much from the get-go. But I I still was a little bit upset about that. I was like, come on, they can make it home together and life will be good. But that wasn't the case. So before we do get to our main third character, ladies, I think we should spend a few words for Dave's parents, Julia Swain Gordon and Henry B. Walthall, who, of course, play Mrs. and Mr. Armstrong. As we don't really get much of the other parents or any other, and these are the ones we spend most time with. What did you make of these two? Uh, let's start with you, Rachel. What did you think of, 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 the, of Dave's parents? Um, they seem pretty stereotypical parents who come from... Uh, affluence um yeah the the dad was just very mm, stiff off her lip um and then the mom his mom uh is definitely the one showing the more emotion because you know that's what women do is they're the emotional ones um and um but um i i (laughs) 
you know, I kind of expected, I kind of expected to see more of the same once uh, Jack comes back and fulfills David's wishes to give the the bear and his medal um, to his to his parents. But um, I was nice. It was good to see that, you know, at first they were both very like. You could tell that they were maybe angry and bitter. That it's like, oh, you know, why did our son have to be the one that dies? And you know, this is the one that comes home and gets the hero's welcome and all that. But then the mom breaks down. She's like, I tried to hate you, but I just can't. It's just war. It is what it is. And even the father was showing some emotion. Um, so even the parents got some. At least David's parents got some emotional growth from the beginning of the movie to the end. Uh, which I appreciated. And what about you, Zan? What did you make of the Armstrong parents? I definitely agree that they had, for as little as uh, for as little screen time as they had, they had quite a lot of character growth. Um, I, yeah, they were very typical upper crusty, non-emotional type people. But you could tell that the mom was very was very maternal. After all, she saved his bear for all those years and the father was that typical you know i'm gonna make a man out of my son by being a total ball buster and just with all of his you know that that bear is not gonna help you in war son (laughs) and just it was nice to see him melt a little bit at the end of the movie just that he you know they really did love their son and you got like like you'd said that the, the the maid is more upset of him leaving so you got the feeling that he probably had a life of private school and nannies and things like that <laughs> but even through all of that it really was actually a very loving a loving family and I thought that was um, well done with the amount of time you know you were able to see them twice but they you only saw them twice but they grew so much from those two scenes and I thought that the um, the actor playing his father did a fantastic job facially, which you have to do in silent movies, but you could you could really tell that he was about to cry and his world was shaken knowing that his son had died. Mm. And that's a that's an interesting it's an interesting talent. Silent film acting is a very interesting talent because you have to do like you were saying, you have to do so much work with your face. Um, I always tell people that it looks like when you watch Sunset Boulevard that Gloria Swanson is overdoing it. And if you turn the sound down, it looks like she's the only one doing anything. And it's a special different, it's a different kind of acting. And I think he does a great job with it, even with the little, with the small amount of screen time he has. Well, I mean, I, I, for totally, I mean, because I think you know, that these are pretty much the only parents who get to spend time with compared to Jack's parents. And I guess, they do, as Rachel was saying, kind of follow the mold of the affluent family. Mrs. Armstrong, of course, very much dotes over her son. And I actually love the, the scene of the exchange of the teddy bear that Dave takes with him. And I also thought her, and, you know, we can also, we, we do have to talk about this. You know, you were mentioning this, Rachel. Uh, her forgiving Jack. It was a very moving scene. As you can see, naturally, how worried and distraught Jack is when he has to go and face Dave's parents with this news. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to Mr. Armstrong, he did seem a rather aloof man. Actually, sometimes he creeped me out with his distant look. And I wondered whether at first he had no care for his son at all. 
But then, of course, we do get the reveal that obviously when his son, he finds out his son is dead, he did really love him and he is incredibly moved by it. But, you know, as we talked about this, you know, and we will, of course, get to that, the rest of our characters. But since we're talking about the parents, um, from what I gathered, you know, the ending was seemed a little bit odd for, for, for the three of us. Um, so when it came to Mrs. Armstrong forgiving Jack, um, what were your thoughts on that? I mean, were you cool with that? Or do you think she should have just totally, you know, uh, rebuffed him completely? Uh, what do you think of this, Rachel? Um, not, it, it kind of depends because we don't know if she knows exactly how her son dies. Mm-hmm. Like if she just thinks that he just died doing what he was supposed to be doing as far as being in the military, um, then I could kind of, I could kind of see that she could just try, you know, is, is, you know, obviously the, you know, the, uh, the degrees or steps, you know, through, through grief and all that, that, you know, anger is one of those. Um, and yeah, I could see why she would be angry, but then once she gets beyond that, you know, realize, you know, it's just war. That is what it is. You know, that people are going to get hurt and injured and killed. But if she knows exactly how he died, the fact that it was Jack that shot him down, um, essentially causing her her son's death. If I were her, I don't know if I would be so forgiving, especially at least not that soon, at least not that right away. I mean, we don't really get a full idea of how much time has passed, but I can't imagine it would be a whole lot of of time has passed since you know the David's death to Jack returning home. Um, but because we don't we don't have context for what exactly she's forgiving him for whether it's because she knows that he shot him down or not um kind of it kind of puts a a filter on how exactly i feel about it so if that makes sense Hmm. and what about you zan i mean were you with uh, mrs armstrong in in forgiving jack or were you were you not happy with that scene I I thought it was a bit I thought it was a bit uh, too forgiving personally. Uh, I was operating under the impression that she did know what happened, that it just the way she was talking and the way she looked at him when he first came in. Again, another fantastic facial performance. But when she was saying to him, "I wanted to hate you, but it was war. Things happen." It it almost seemed like she did know. I mean, they didn't explicitly say it, but I got the impression of that. So. Working under that impression, I sort of was thinking, what, who, how is this guy able to come out so unscathed on everything? But I think something happened because when she, he does come in and both of the parents are there, you know, everyone's looking at him. Even the dog is looking at him like, the hell are you yeah, doing? Yeah, I think right I, I, even, I even wrote down, even dog, David's dog is bitter. Jack survived yeah, and he did. Exactly. The dog <laughs> is like, why the hell are you here, sir? So he's there. There's just been the parade, and everybody's been talking about how great he is. Even and though he, they, he's the guy that killed their son. So he walks in, and you can tell he's scared, and you can see that look of just, if you don't get the hell off of my property right now, I'm going to shoot you in the back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then he holds out his hand, and the bear is there, and I think that melts her a little bit. I think that makes her realize that. This person was important enough to David 
for him to trust with the promise he made me that I will bring this bear back to you, mama, that because that, because Jack is that guy that did that. And then just seeing the bear and just remembering her love for her son, I think that does melt her a little bit. And I liked, I liked that. And I liked her performance with that, but I still think Jack, it's off way too easy on everything in this movie. Oh, I, I, there is definitely some some truth in that, indeed. And so, as we as we did, you know, talk a little bit about her. Let's get to the third main character in this film. As we did talk about her, of course, the leading sex sex symbol of the twenties, Clara Bow as Mary Preston. So, what did the two of you make of the It's Girl? Let's start with you, Zan. What were your thoughts on on Clara Bow as Mary Preston? Well, I absolutely adore Clara Bow. Um, I think she's adorable. I think she's she's very talented. I'm a big Betty Boop fan, and she's half of what in half of what went into making Betty Boop. So I've always been a big fan of hers. And to see her in something like this, where I feel like she just sort of fizzled. I don't think she was used to her potential. Was a little disappointing to me because I thought from you know I you know I loved her as the really energetic girl next door and then she looked like she was going to be this great feminist character of the the motor girls and who can drive a Ford and come for the war effort and and she can drive a car and she just drives the car right down to the right down to the office and says here I am and she's there and you know she again she saves she saves Jack and she does her thing but then she just gets like cast off she gets misunderstood fired and then we never see her again until she's just back home behind the petticoats again so as much as i loved her character and i loved seeing her and i loved like i said the raciness and that's one of the greatest things about clara bow is the innocent raciness that she brings she's got that cute face those cute eyes like she looks like betty boop but then, like I said, she's going to come onto screen from behind, you know, she's going to spread two legs of a petticoat and poke her head through like, hey, what's up, y'all? <laughs> and she's going to be in that, just even that dress, that low cut dress with the, you know, cut to the navel with the belly cut out was incredible. And then her being naked where she's just clutching herself and you, you're, it's, you're looking at her bare back. And I love the dichotomy of her, her cute as a button, but also sexy nature. Um, I loved seeing her, but I felt like she was nowhere near. I, I felt like they wasted their chance with having Clara Bow in this movie. They wasted their chance of having this fantastic pioneering feminist character. They wasted their chance of having the it girl, you know, and that was the same year, you know, it, the movie she was in that gave her the name, the it girl was the same year. And so I feel like they, kind of missed missed their chance with her i think she was criminally underused in this and i think her character arc was also criminally just tossed to the side just okay you know none of those shenanigans young lady you're fired okay bye see ya yeah and you know jack doesn't even come to her defense or anything like that as much as he tries to come to her defense earlier like no one says anything bad about mary he can't he can't figure it out. He can't, like I said, he's blind. He can't figure it out. He can't help her. He's passed out. He can't say no, that nothing happened. She just brought me here when was trying to make sure I didn't get court-martialed for not going back to war. She was helping me. And, 
and she is for me the most egregious over forgiver of Jack because he essentially takes everything away from her that she's got going for her and sends her back home to go right back where she was and she's just sitting there on the other side of the fence waiting for him and everything's forgiven and I just thought you know at least he figures it out I mean maybe she's just happy he figures it out that you know she's the better choice for him but I don't know if I if I were uh, if I were Mary I wouldn't I wouldn't have given him the time of day I'm like you have no idea what I went through with getting with the MPs thanks to you so mm-hmm. take a hike you know that that would have been me but that's me in 2020 that's not 1927 <laughs> so for 1927 <laughs> like I said I'm very appreciative of the feminist nature of her character but I do think she was criminally underused and Rachel do you agree with Zan? Um. Well, not having any frame of reference because I've not seen her in anything else, but um, just as a, a an actress, I I enjoyed whenever she was on screen. She does have this um, seemingly larger than life personality to just come through the screen, um, whether it's where she's being the you know bubbly girl next door you know when she's helping uh jack fix up the the car and you know she tells him you know what you're supposed to do when you see a shooting star give your give the girl you love a kiss and she's standing there with her eyes closed and her lips out and you know <laughs> jack's just oblivious he's totally to, blind yeah <laughs> yeah he's absolutely blind to it to you know when she sees him in Paris, just absolutely hammered, and he's completely ignoring her, and she realizes that, you know, if she doesn't do something, that he's going to get kicked out, he's going to get court-martialed, and he's going to lose everything that she is, I'm surely aware of what he's dreamed, you know, becoming a a, a pilot, Um, so, um, and, you know, the tears on her face um is is just uh she's just so good at those facial expressions that you know the silent film actors have to have um and i i believe even clara bow herself felt that she was underutilized in this movie um at the very least uh taking advantage of her looks um uh, i think she probably compared to her military uniform, um, which was very buttoned up, um, not very, you know, it showed off a little bit of her figure because it did have those belts. Um, but it I got to say those boots were kind of sexy. Yeah, so the, I kind of liked it. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, once they get her into the, you know, the, the, the showgirl, the French showgirl dress, which was, you know, cut all the way down to there granted it's there's like a sheer panel there so it's not entirely naked in that cutout but i mean it essentially is um <laughs> but uh i i believe i read or saw something somewhere that she did not like her costumes in this movie because she wanted she wanted something more sexy because she knew that was one of her strong suits was showing off her figure and um she would go and complain to <laughs> The costume department, which when you realize that it was, um, you know, famous, you know, costumer Edith Head that did some of the costume design for this. You're like, "Um, really? You're going to complain to Edith Head? (laughs) 
balance. <laughs> right. But, you know, um, but yeah, I, to me, she was one of the, the high points of the, of the film for me. So she definitely was, I think, one of the high points indeed. I very much got the impression almost that she was very much a tomboy at first, you know, though granted <clears throat> that term would only be coined like 30 years later, but I kind of got the tomboy um, vibe at first. You know, she is an incredibly fun and bubbly character. And you have to feel so bad for her that she's pining over Jack and he has pretty much stuck her in the friend zone. And I think to myself, you know, really, girl, you can do better. But I wonder <laughs> whether whether her joining the war effort as an ambulance driver, of course, I suppose it was her way of keeping an eye on Jack and Dave. And so I thought it was it was it was so moving that she would even go go to those extremes for the man that she loves. I love how much she tries to get his attention, even when he's drunk. She does not give up, but even gets advice from the French maîtress to dress more alluringly. And I, I thought that was actually a rather sweet and kind of cute kind of scene of the older French maîtress telling her, oh, you know, you have to kind of show off what you got, honey, kind of thing. And, and I thought that was it was it was great, great fun. And also, I think had there been an audience track on this film, she probably would have gotten a lot of ahs on the on this film for sure. Definitely. Um, but, uh, but, but a beautiful character indeed. Absolutely adored her. And, and speaking actually of love interests, ladies, let's talk about the woman of contention when it comes to Dave and Jack, Jabina Ralston as Sylvia Lewis, whom actually had quite the career in films with alongside Harold Lloyd with films like Why Worry, for example. So what did you what did the two of you make of this particular character? Let's start with you, Rachel. What were your thoughts on Sylvia Lewis or at least what we got of Sylvia? Yeah, I would say compared to Mary, we don't really get a whole lot. So we don't really get much personality from her. Um, it, it's it's the best I can that I got from her was, you know, she's she's not a hometown girl to this town where they're living. She's a, an outsider, although we don't know for how long, you know, she's been living there long enough, I guess. Um but, um, you know, she seems nice enough. Um, she obviously has no idea how to put Jack down, you know, in a way that's not going to hurt his feelings, which, you know, that's probably, you know, even in today, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are probably some people that are like, I just don't want to hurt their feelings, but at the same time, it's like, you're kind of leading them on, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's intentional or not. Um, uh, obviously, she she knows where her heart lies, and she makes sure to, to remind David that she's like, you know, I'm just, I'm being nice to him, but my heart lies with you. Um, but beyond that, don't really know a whole lot about her so it's kind of hard to form a, a full opinion without a fully formed character very true i mean then what about you zan i mean what do you think of of the the little that we did get of, of sylvia's character i i did i felt bad for her because she was nothing but tumultuousness and tragedy you know she starts out you know she's she's the girl from the big city so we know everyone loves her so we know that about her that she's sort of the town like the the one girl in town that everybody guy that that every that every guy wants but at the same time i liked her as a 
character because she doesn't act like that. She doesn't have that, I can have any man I want in this town air about her. She's a very sweet character. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she has a genuine love for the one guy, even though she could probably have her pick of anybody. Um, so I liked that about her. And I did not like that when the when the movie ends, we don't know what happened to her. We just see her sort of on the swing, staring off into space with what uh, with what she thought was her future is now gone. So... You know, did she get thee to a nunnery? I mean, what happened to her? And I and yeah. I felt bad that we didn't get to know that. And so it's, you know, it's it's kind of nice to know that the, the, the two most tragic characters actually got each other in the end. Because she and Richard Arlen were actually married after this movie. So it's sort of a, a real-life consolation prize that they have the tragic endings, but they have the happy ending in real life. But I, I think she's she's a good example of... How she could have been a really interesting character because, like I said, there's usually that cliche of the girl that everybody in town wants being kind of um, using that to their advantage to get what they want. That sort of cliche. They, they didn't do that with this character. But again, they also didn't do anything else with her. So it's a, you know, I, I could fall back on the nobody knows how to write for women <laughs> cliche also, but. I would have liked to have seen more about what happened to her, frankly. Yeah, she does get a little bit underserved in this film. And and I also will agree with you both. I think she is incredibly indulgent when it comes to the affections that Jack bestows on hers. You know, you go to 2020. Today, I think if a guy is so insistent of a woman, at least over here in Italy, she will tell him where to go, literally. Um, <laughs> that's, that's Italian women. I cannot speak for American women, but that's the way they do it in Italy. Um But, uh, you know, as I said, yeah, she's incredibly indulgent. And I think it's very clear to to him that she loves Dave and, you know, reluctantly, she kind of lets him put her picture in his locket, which was, of course, was meant for Dave. And I just felt that maybe she could have protested a little bit more, but maybe she's just nice that way. And so like, okay, you know, fine, take the take the picture, put it, you know, whatever. But I thought it was like, you know protest a little bit more. But I, you know, I think we almost got a greater grasp of her character through the letters that she sends David, in particular the famous letter that we get to see where she's like, you know, Jack is constantly pestering me, telling me that he loves me and stuff, and but I love you. So we maybe got a little bit more, but yes, she didn't really get much of an arc and much of an, an ending. But I like that you pointed out that Zan, they actually did get married in real life. So I guess there was a payoff to this movie indeed. Um, but so when it comes to the honorable mentions here, when it comes to our cast, ladies, I would talk a little bit possibly about one of my personal favorite characters in this film, Elle Brendel as Herman Schwimpf. And, <laughs> and, and the appearance yes. of super duper Gary Cooper as Cadet White. So what did you, what did the two of you make of these, of these characters? Since I heard you laughing, Rachel, what do you think of Herman Schwimpf and, should we say this, in inverted commas, cameo of Gary Cooper's? Oh, Herman was just... He was good comic relief. Uh, you know, it was, it was so, it, it just, it always struck me as funny that he, he was, uh, he reminded me of one of like, like a Marx brother or one of the three stooges or something. Some of his facial expressions, I'm like, who is this guy? Um, and, you know, people, <laughs> he'd fill out a form and they'd be like, you know, Herman, Schwimpf, you know, what kind of name is that? Because it's obviously it's European sounding, you know, whether it's it's German or Austrian or something, Dutch. It was know. Dutch, yeah. Dutch, yeah. The, um, 
you know, they're like, you know, it's like, what do you think you're trying to do? I don't know if they thought he was like, you know, someone on the other side trying to, you know, enlist to be a spy or something. I don't know. But then, he, you know, he'd take off his shirt and he's got this American flag tattoo on his <laughs> bicep that, you know, when he flexes it looks like the flag's waving and as soon as they see that they're like oh man you're okay let me let me walk you right over here sir that you know here here's your new bunk you know <laughs> please make yourself comfortable <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like you know tell oh, your last name doesn't matter because you have the american flag tattooed on your arm that's all that matters I'm like all righty then it's a uh, very interesting, but he, you know, he was uh, definitely a good sign. He was definitely good comic relief when they were doing things like the the boxing and 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 all the calisthenics, I guess. Um, you know, it's essentially boot camp or whatever you want to call it. Um, he was quite uh, fun to watch, and I'm I'm glad that uh, that they even explained that. You know, he didn't do well as a pilot, so he became a mechanic instead, <laughs> so that they could explain why he's still there, uh, but not flying with the guys. So, um, yeah. and, and what did you make of, of Gary Cooper? I mean, were you a fan of Gary Cooper's? Had you seen him in any other movies before, uh, you know, prior to watching this? Uh, I, very little, very, very little. Uh, so, and it's been a while. Uh, so, um, but yeah, as, as soon as they got to the, the tent and yeah, there's a sleeping body and I'm like, yeah, that's Gary Cooper. <laughs> I could just tell it was him from the back. <laughs> <laughs> then he wakes up. I'm like, yep, that's Gary Cooper. Um, and then he takes off literally and figuratively and then they kill him off. And it's like, okay, well that's it for Gary Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, quite a, should say, a quick cameo there indeed. And Zan, what did you make of, of Herman Schwimpf and uh, Gary Cooper's brief appearance on this film? Herman Schwimpf was, 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 I agree with Rachel, good, good comic relief and just proof that white people just want to hate somebody. <laughs> you know, you have a bunch of white guys, but they're going to hate the Dutchman. Like, wow, that is really specific with your xenophobia and your bigotry. So he's a he's a good example of that. And even El Brindel in real life, he was a he was a vaudeville star, which, you know, explains his comedic timing. But he's he's German, but he he like went around telling people he was Swedish they called him like the the fake Swede or something like that. I forget what his nickname was, but because of the war, everybody hated Germans. And so he just was like, yeah, no, I'm Swedish. Like, um, like Americans have to do sometimes when they travel, like, no, we're from Canada. We <laughs> so I thought that was, uh, I thought that was interesting about the, you know, he was good comic relief, but he was also a good look into the time about how people were really specific with their bigotry. It was, you know there was you know there was the, the the racism across the board, but then even even after you get above that, you had the very specific xenophobia, which I thought was an interesting uh, interesting look glimpse into the time period. And uh, Gary Cooper, um, damn, he's a good looking guy. He really <laughs> he's got he's got a lot of stage presence, and he's you know he's got the most Oscar gold out of everybody in this movie who worked on this movie, um, you know, cause he's won two best actor awards and 
he's it, it's interesting too i think sometimes when you see certain stars before they were stars mm-hmm. you know sometimes you have somebody like a like a clint eastwood in revenge of the creature where they're just they're kind of just there and you're like oh yeah check it out it's clint eastwood all right whatever but then you have somebody like gary cooper in this early cameo before he was gary cooper but but you can see the presence you can really he really just sort of stands out and not just because he's gary cooper and really good looking but because he just has some real talent that we haven't seen all of yet and i thought that was that was cool to see how how brightly he shines for five minutes in a you know almost three hour movie because he's just that good so I, I thought that was, I always think that's fun to see people in something before their stars and see how it, how it looks like, you know, I don't know if we would have known back then in 1927, like that guy who gets shot down immediately, he's going places. But when you look back on it, you're like, he had something. He really <laughs> had something. I mean, is it, is it bad that when he came on screen and I knew it was Gary Cooper putting on the Ritz started playing in my head? No, that's exactly what happened to me. That's what happens anytime I hear the name Gary Cooper. It is immediately followed with super duper, either in a computery voice, like Taco did it, or Luma, Luma. One of the two. It's one of the two. <laughs> okay, well, I don't feel that bad then. But um, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, Herman Shrimp is possibly my favorite character in this film. Is He is, of course, like you, but we're both mentioning the comedic relief. He doesn't actually seem too upset about being made a mechanic rather than a, than a flyer, I think. And I absolutely loved his good-natured spirit and how desperately I think he does want to fit in by showing off, you know, his his tattoo of the American flag. And it was always kind of funny. Every time he did that, you heard, of course, um, you know, the, the anthem go off. And I thought it was kind of nice. But um, I, I think, you know, he is he's just great. And I, I think it probably also played well with the patriotic spirit of the viewers to constantly have that kind of, um, you know, uh, close up on the tattoo. I do think it was a shame though we didn't get as much of him as the movie unfolded. And I was like, come on, more Herman Schwimpf. Come on, we want more Herman Schwimpf. But, um, but I did chuckle every time he was on screen. He was fantastic. And, and yeah, when it comes to Gary Cooper, I think that although his appearance was very brief, I think his role almost was to strengthen the bonds between Dave and Jack because, you know, we find out that, of course, he, he, he dies as well and almost exposes the tragedy of war as well and maybe instills in our heroes and the audience that war is not fun and games. And Because, you know, you maybe have these young folks who may seeing these films and, wow, it would have been so cool to go to war and stuff. But um, I think it may also be a commentary on that too. And speaking actually of war and speaking of the opposing side, the Germans in this case, what did the two of you make of how the Germans were depicted and almost how war is depicted? Because I feel war almost has a presence in this film as a character. Let's start with you, Zan. What did you think of how the Germans were portrayed and also the way war was portrayed? The, I think the Germans were very... They were done very stereotypically mustache-twirling villains, and which you kind of have to do in this situation where you're you're only going on a visual. You don't have a lot of character arc. You don't have a lot of um, uh, nuance other than visual. And so just, you know, them with their, with their gaudy airplanes, with their, you know, with their iron crosses and their, you know, the dragons painted on their bombers and things like that. And these notorious, um, 
these notorious, you know, flying circus, flying corps that they have in there just sort of, you know, just reminded me of, of like, Snoopy is the Red Baron fighting yes, these guys. Yes, exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, yes! <laughs> yeah, it's like you see them fighting, fighting anything with an iron cross, you're like, Snoopy's here! <laughs> so, I think that they were, um, I think they did, a, I think this movie did a good job of being propaganda without being propagandic where you don't have the you know the 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 germans you know like the the title cards didn't have like racist accents and you know some silent movies like watch some harold lloyd movies where there are black actors and you're just going to cringe at how they write the title cards they didn't have anything like that that wasn't like you know fires and missiles you know any they didn't do that in this mm-hmm. so and I think part of that was the benefit, you know, I, I say benefit in air quotes, of the war having only been 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, us just sort of remembering, it's just, I think it was just still in us as a country to think Germans, bad people. So I don't think they had to do a lot with that. And, you know, unfortunately for the, for the German people as a whole, I think that, you know, the both world wars have done that to them as a as a country where you know a certain time period you see germans and you think oh and so i think they did a good job of just sort of letting the perception of germany speak for itself when they were talking about the germans you know they had their helmets they had their planes you knew it was them so so they didn't do a lot of like i said anti-german propaganda they just sort of let it you know let your imagination and your own the audience's perception of of the germans speak for themselves and as for war in general i thought it um i think it did a decent job of showing you what war was like for specific people you know it didn't try to give you the entire war all at once which i think was good that this is what mm-hmm. these experiences for these boys were like and you had everything you had the dog fights you had the trenches so you had you know just a little bit of everything and then you had the the innocent towns in Paris that their church gets fired on by the Germans and then they and then the building gets destroyed when David flies into it when he finally gets shot down by Jack where you have the that collateral damage where you have that French woman who tries to take care of and the French soldiers that are trying to take care of David when he's dying that you know you have the situation where you have one country and then another country who's from some place completely different, and you're fighting like over a bunch of other different countries, and it really sort of reminds you that there's there's more here than just these two these two opposing sides. And so I thought it did a good job of subtly reminding you that a war experience for the people is different than the war experience as a whole. And it did a good job of just paying attention, of just showing you what it needed to show you for the two, our two main characters' experiences. Well, very well said. And what about you, Rachel? What did you make of of the Germans and and uh, how war was shown in this film? Yeah, no, Zan. I mean, you like, are you reading my mind? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of scary. Um, we should we should compare our our, our copious notes and see which yeah. of us wrote down the exact same things. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it, they. I'm glad that they, and some of that may be the fact that because this movie was made a 
you know, essentially a decade after, you know, because the war was still so fresh in everybody's minds. I mean, a lot of the people that worked on this movie were in the actual war itself, including the director, um, that maybe that had something to do with the fact that they treated it with a bit more respect um, than turning it into this anti-German propaganda film. Like, they, yeah, they could have easily gone, like, you know, Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove with the Germans, you know, (laughs) but, but they didn't, um, you know, the, if you're talking specifically about all the war bits in this movie, you know, set aside all the, the hometown and the love, not triangle, but quadrangle, I guess. Um, but talking about just the war specific scenes and elements, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, time and technology, you know, filmmakers have way more at their disposal now. But honestly, I think a lot of the war stuff, you could compare that to the uh, the cinematography in 1917, the Sam Mendes film that came out last year. Um, and the fact that it, it just focuses on these two guys that are involved in this war and um, how it affects them. And occasionally you will see how it affects the peripheral people, whether it's the enemy, whether it's the Germans or um, whether it's, you know, these, these small villages in France that are literally caught in the crossfire uh, between these, these two sides, just fighting each other and dropping bombs and just, you know, shooting machine guns all over the place. Um, so, and, you know, pre, <laughs> pre-code, some of the war stuff is brutal. Um, I was really, really, you know, I knew this was pre-code, but even then I was really surprised at just how brutal some of the uh, fighting was portrayed in this movie like there's uh one guy i think i don't know i don't know whose side it's whose side they were on but there's one pilot that gets shot while flying and just like the blood just you know he essentially vomits it out of his mouth while you know as he's dying in the cockpit of his plane i'm like i think that's one of the two guys in the dragon yeah, it's like this I, is. I thought of that too. Where like, yeah, Whoa. I was like, this is kind of grotesque for 1927. I would think, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it's like people actually want to see, you know, the sort of thing. Like uh, nowadays, you you know, blink twice at. It. I mean, you look at something like 1970 or Game of Thrones or something. You know, people don't blink twice at, you know, copious amounts of blood being shown on screen, but. You know, considering the time period, to me, it seemed kind of shocking. But, yeah, that's war. Oh, yeah, well, I very much agree with you, because I thought there was quite a lot of gore for the 20s indeed. Um, And, you know, the two of you, I think, really hit the nail on the head when the fact of how I think the Germans were depicted, because, like you were both saying, you could have just depicted them as being evil and ruthless and just slander them completely, but I thought it was interesting that, yeah, we did get to see the horrors of what war can wrought. But at the same time, you know, we don't really actually have a villainous German officer or anything of that nature. I mean, I'm, so I'm not saying that I want to see the Red Skull necessarily. But, uh, <laughs> but <Not> trust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not twist. The, the, the Red Skull is there. Um, but, you know, we did get, you know, some. Here's David's uh, bear and uh, Hail Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, because aside from, of course, Kellerman, who we get a little bit, he's talked a little about, he seems incredibly chivalrous and very respectful. And it seems like the two sides respect each other a lot. You know, aside from obviously Jacqueline going on his um, his killing spree, as it his were, vengeance spree of shooting down his buddy. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of almost mutual respect between the two sides for yeah. for the most part. Um, but yeah, the, the the fights are so bloody, and it, but at the same time, it seems like both sides follow the rules to the game, as it were, and they're both very noble in fighting for their in, in the way they fight and such. I and mean, we see that even with Kellerman, who at a certain point he sees like a plane's about to go down, he doesn't even bother with it, and because he's like, you know, I want to fight you on equal terms. And so I thought that was it was interesting. And you know, as I actually mentioned earlier, I think the true evil in the film is war and how it is described because. War, you know, aside from obviously the physical depictions we get, a lot of the feel I think we get from the title cards, and it almost seems like kind of almost like a sort a Sauron presence almost, because you have like you know the 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 horror of war and the evilness, and you have the very ominous music always. And so I thought to myself, it's almost like a character watching these people fight each other. I mean, I I don't know if the two of you have uh, are watching this at all, but. It kind of made me think of one of the characters who's in um, Penny Dreadful City of Angels. I don't know if any of either of you are following that, but there's a character no. there who basically organizes everything to where everybody kills each other. And she is instrumental in doing that. And that's the kind of image I got of war in this case, almost as if it were like a goddess or a god watching this will happen, like kind of Aries, as it were, in the, in the DC universe, for example. But yeah, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And so before we do get to uh, ratings and our segment, if we were the Academy, ladies, as you seem very vocal on the ending. Let's focus on the ending here. What did that? So I'm assuming you were not happy with the ending. Let's start no. with you, Rachel. What were your <laughs> thoughts on, on how this movie ended? It's just like... You know, Jack comes home and he gets his hero's welcome. You know, they throw a parade and there's people waiting for him at the train station and he gets paraded through town and they make this giant float covered in flowers. It looks like, you know, one of the airplanes and um, just this, this everybody in town is just like, yay, hometown hero. You know, and that, at this point the war is over too. Um, so they have even more reason to celebrate and, um, it's just this big thing, and then he goes, you know, to deliver the, those items to to David's parents, and it's this whole emotional thing. And you can tell he's just distraught. And then he goes home, and he's got his car, and he's like, "Hey, my car! It's still here!" And hey, there's Mary; she's still here. And you know, he he kind of starts to have this breakdown when talking to Mary um, about the when specifically when he was in paris and you know he he has this he had this encounter with this woman that he doesn't even realize it was mary because he was so drunk and he you doesn't know, even mary, know he didn't sleep with her either yeah <laughs> I think it's yeah. Adorable. <laughs> yeah and and mary's just so like you know i'm sure in her head she's like you dumb dumb that was me but you were too drunk to realize it but instead she's like yeah, I saw some things too, but you know, that's in the past. We just got to live for the future. And oh, look, a shooting star. Kissy, kissy. We live happily ever after. And it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's 
it's very obvious that this guy is suffering you know he's got some mental and emotional impact maybe even physical things that you know nowadays he would be going to therapy and maybe seeing a physician and maybe taking medication for his ptsd and all this stuff but it's like oh no he's got his car and he's got his girl he'll be fine yeah it, it, that that the car and the girl always make things better i suppose yeah. <laughs> And what about you, Zan? Were you satisfied with the ending? Uh, not to bring things too too serious right now, but I'm tr- I was trying to distance myself from the current state of the United States right now. And would this bother me at any point in my life? Or am I just not in the mood for yet another white guy where everything works out for him? And I think it really, I really do think that I'm just sort of like, what, really? I mean, as a, as a woman and as a feminist, like I said, Mary letting him off the hook for everything, for treating her like crap and for getting her fired and not sticking up for her and not even knowing he was in a hotel room with her. I feel like she's overlooking a lot to, you know, for, to, to be with him. And I don't necessarily think he deserves it. I mean, if it was Gary Cooper, maybe something a little different, but uh, <laughs> I feel like she's, she's letting him off the hook a lot. And, and because she was my favorite character, that bothered me. And again, I felt like he, like you said, Rachel, he comes home and he gets to go right back to the same life he had, except now he's got, more experience he's seen the world he's probably more employable now so things are better for him when he comes back but he gets to go right back to what he was doing going you know playing with his car you know having a nice time with the girl next door and like you said he was picked up by the by his family at the train station he had people waiting for him he had the hero's welcome and you know he did shoot down the dragon i mean he he does have some hero qualities to him but with everything that he did, everything working out for him so perfectly and him being so forgiven by not only the person he killed, but the parents of the person he killed and by the girl who I think he hasn't treated with enough respect for him to deserve her. So I think that got to me a little bit as an ending. I think it was what we would have wanted from the ending the you know the heroes welcome the happy ending that everything's going to be okay and like you were saying before Rachel PTSD wasn't something we talked about you know somebody who who shoots down his best friend would would probably be forced into therapy mm-hmm. in in the, in this day and age but he just is sort of oh well that's worth you know shit happens <laughs> we're just going to yeah. move on <laughs> So that that's, you know, I'm having a hard time reconciling my feelings about that with what I think the movie needed and what the movie going public wanted at the time. And just, I think that's another little tiny bit of war propaganda that we see in this movie that, you know, hey, this is what happens during war. We got to get over it. And, you know, why we had such problems in World War One, with people coming back with what we called at the time shell shock, mm-hmm. and 
just sort of it just sort of glosses over the pain of everything but that's what we did back then that's what we did until probably you know 15 years ago so you know as a product of its time i get it but for me being the person i am in the time period i am watching it it's it's a little unsatisfying and i just don't think jack's not a bad character he's not a bad guy he didn't do necessarily anything out of malice he did it out of ignorance and being blinded by you know his his own goals but i just don't think he's as deserving as a person who gets everything that he gets should be and you know personally that's well i mean i agree i mean the movie was very i mean it did wrap up a little bit too cleanly and i agree with you both as in there maybe could have been a little bit more accountability when it came to also jack's character you know be it either psychological or what have you and you know, I'm mean, having him more of a changed man since, I mean, he's seen his best, he basically gunned down his best friend. But yeah, there is almost that kind of shoulder shrug of like, oh, well, you know, that's war for you. You know, that's, you know, I'm going to work on my car and kiss the girl and, and, and everything's hunky dory. But it, it, I did think it was a little bit too clean of an ending. I mean, I did like it. I mean, I did, it did put a smile on my face at the end of the film, you know, with, of course, the two of them sharing the kiss and, and everything was nice. But of course, I do think possibly if this movie had been made today, I probably might not have been as clean cut as all that. And we may have seen a shell shock to Jack and him having to deal with that and possibly, you know, Mary helping him out with that. But maybe not the fact of almost them riding into the sunset, as it were. So I will agree with you both. It was not it probably was a little bit too clean, but I guess that's that's what we got. And so. Before we get to ratings here, let's get to a segment for our listeners, which will be a regular feature on this podcast, which is which is called If We Were the Academy. And Zan, as you spearheaded this idea, when it comes to you, you know, because this film was running up against a crime film, The Racket, Seventh Heaven and a Chaplin film that I absolutely love, which is The Circus. Um, when it comes to you, first off, Zan, do you think Wing, does Wings get the Oscar for you, or would you say it's at least Oscar-worthy? I would say it is Oscar-worthy. Uh, there were a lot of things I loved about this movie. The, Like I said, the pioneering of the special effects with the aerial shots, those were, those were done in Texas. They used... You know, they, they used Thomas Morse MB3s and Curtis P1 Hawks, and they tried to get as much in-the-sky footage as they possibly could so you could have the contrast with the clouds. So for innovation, I, I really do think it's Oscar-worthy. And, I mean, and there are things, and this I think this is a good example of the Oscars having a pattern that has started from right from the very beginning. And you say Chaplin movie, and probably everybody's thinking, well, why didn't the Chaplin movie win? Comedies don't win Oscars, and that's a fact of life that I hate. But I, you know, it, it, I think it's interesting that that trend started from the very, very beginning. Um, and there were things that, you know, I loved knowing about this movie, just the, just the, the people involved, and you know, their relationships throughout the rest of their lives. I mean, there are things about this movie that I think are very, very sweet and very nice, and I, you know, as a technical triumph, I definitely think this is Oscar worthy. I think out of the movies that it was nominated with, I definitely think it is the front runner, in my opinion. But ha were I the Academy, and I get it, I, you know, based on the German, the anti-German sentiment in this movie, I totally get why it was not nominated. 
But if I were the Academy, I would have nominated Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which came out the same year. That would have been my choice for an Oscar. Hmm. But out of yeah. out of everything that was nominated, I, I I would pick this one. But if I had a, if I had an option to nominate something else, that's what I would have done. Would have been Metropolis. And and what about you, Rachel? Because I know that also on your Five Ish Fangos podcast, you ha- you guys have often touched up on Metropolis now and again. To you, does does Wings get the Oscar for you, or would you say it's Oscar worthy, or or were you not happy the fact that this is the first movie to win an Oscar? Um, it's it's it's. It's interesting. I'm kind of with Zan where I think it definitely is Oscar worthy. Um, and um, this is actually probably before before I dive into Wings specifically, I think this would be a good opportunity to give our listeners some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is the first, what we're calling the first Academy Award winner for Best Picture. Um, but actually, that was not the award in when the Academy Awards were handed out um, the in 1929, actually this movie is from 1927. The first awards were actually handed out in May of 1929. Um, and they included um, any, any movies that played in Los Angeles between August 1st, 1927 and August 1st, 1928 were eligible. The jazz singer, came out during that time but they did not include it because they thought it would have too much of an advantage being the quote-unquote first talkie Mm. um so it wasn't included in any of the nominees um but what they considered the top awards were actually two different categories they had a category for outstanding picture and then they had a category for best unique and artistic picture Mm -hmm. and wings won for outstanding picture while the film Sunrise won the best unique and artistic picture. Um, and then when we get to our next episode, we'll see that that changes because the Academy actually changes it. They drop the unique and artistic picture category and then retroactively actively decided that Wings and that category of outstanding picture is the highest honor that could have been awarded. So the the fact that Wings technically is the first Best Picture winner kind of has a little asterisk next to it. Um, and yeah, I think considering the tie, you know, the 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 a lot time allotment that they gave for movies that could have been eligible for nominations, I think there are others out there that didn't even get nominated for either of those two categories that that should have been included including metropolis i think the jazz singer probably should have been included um for you know if anything for being the quote-unquote first talkie um wings did end up winning what we would consider a technical award for best engineering effects which is a category that does not exist any longer now we have all those technical categories for you know cinematography and editing and all that fun stuff um but back then it was just an engineering award essentially um so yeah i think as far as like the cinema what we would call cinematography it definitely deserves the recognition of a nomination is it the one that should have got the the top award that that first um that first academy award ceremony i don't think so 
Yeah. Interesting. I mean, because, you know, it, you both make fantastic points because I was thinking also of the fact of Zan was mentioned that comedies do not win Oscars and we yes. will see that trait carry on. And neither does science fiction much uh, or fantasy, you know, but this, and like Zan said, this does kind of set a precedent for one, comedies don't win Best Picture and two, the Academy really loves war movies. <laughs> yeah, we will be seeing a lot oh, yeah. of movies, ladies. Yes. This is true. Um, but yeah, you know, as much as I do love Chaplin's films, I would have liked to have seen the circus win the the, the award. But I mean, I do think you know, what this movie did do was groundbreaking because of the fact of you know the shots in the sky and the actors actually being filmed while while flying. Because probably today you pro you wouldn't get that. You probably get somebody against the green screen, maybe. Right. Unless it's Tom Cruise, in that case, he would actually go up on the plane. <laughs> he has, he has the need for speed. I gotta tell, I gotta tell you, Nick. I think I'm the only person who grew up in the 1980s who has not seen Top Gun. So I'm with you. No, I haven't seen it either. Oh, oh fantastic, fantastic! <laughs> this is a great crew of people. <laughs> Yay! I'm um, well. See, then I, I, I definitely chose the you know, my two co-hosts wisely. That's why we work so well together. But yeah, I mean, I could have, I, like I said, maybe today would have seen somebody riding a barrel or something behind the green screen or what have you. You would never put your lead leads lives in jeopardy by flying around and stuff. But so. You know, kudos to them, I suppose, very brave. And also, you know, the fact that we had genuine drunkenness on the on this film and, you know, where other times would be feigned. Granted, of course, as we were saying, was a pre-code film. And I, I enjoyed it. I think it does deserve the Oscar. But like, you know, you were both mentioning, there were other movies out there that were as groundbreaking, i.e. the jazz singer and, of course, Metropolis. So, you know, I think all in all, we can say, you know, we, Happy, but not too much. But so let's get to ratings here. Where does this movie rate for you on a scale of one to ten? Let's start with you, Rachel. What would you give this film? Oh, goodness. If it, it, it depends on. How, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, this is hard because it's like uh, as far as because I'm I'm really really into um and i can really appreciate really good cinematography and people that push the butt you know the envelope and the technology technology of being a filmmaking you know whether it's you know something that we would consider these days extremely simple that tracking shot in paris to slapping cameras on actual planes while you're actual stars are flying i mean like you can see like they're they're like their their cheeks flapping in the wind as they're flying this plane yes i thought that was i thought that was fascinating to see that that is just you know his cheeks are yeah. just blowing in the wind when he's yeah, when so david like, has been shot and you can tell that he's just passed out and the wind is just right there with him yeah so it's like you know from a cinematography and technical standpoint i mean Especially considering the time period, I would definitely rank this pretty high. Um, but uh, from a storytelling standpoint and the way the characters are written, that just that knocks it down several pegs for me. Um, so it's like, you know, technological wise, I would probably give it like an eight. But you know, story story wise, I mean it's probably like a five, so I guess if you split the difference, you know, six and a half, six, six and a half maybe. So 
Well, I, I think that's fair. And what about you, Zan? Uh, how do you rate this film from 1 to 10? I'm, I'm really close to Rachel. I'm, I'm a solid 7 on this one because it is a major spectacle. It's a major technical feat. I remember I was watching it and thinking, wow, 1920, wow, this is, you know, just being impressed with it. And then trying to put myself back in 1927 and think of what, you know, we've all heard that story about the people who first saw the first motion picture of a train getting up and running out of the theater because I thought the train was coming at them. So if you think about that was, you know, only about 20 years before this, (laughs) to be the audience in this and to see this kind of spectacle was probably incredible. And, you know, I so I get that. Story-wise, I think I was, I I don't think it was the strongest story in the world, but I did find myself interested and caring about the characters. So I I did sit with it because I wanted to see what happened to them. And again, you know, Clara Bow, I'll watch anything Clara Bow's in. I think she's wonderful. Again, she's underused in this movie, but I think she adds a quality to anything she's in that, you know, elevates any... (laughs) Any 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 movie with any any faults to it is going to be elevated by the presence of Clara Bow, in my opinion. <laughs> Amen to that. I mean, I'm I'm pretty much on on par with the two of you. I'm also going to give this film a seven out of ten. I I enjoyed it. I mean, I will be watching it again sometime. And actually, after having you know watched it online, actually I actually purchased it on Blu-ray as well. So it's definitely a movie worth watching. I think, and it might not be for everybody. But I think that if folks want to get an idea of the influence this film did have on aviation films and the like, I think it is a must watch for sure. So it does get a seven out of 10 from me, too. So, ladies, we we talked about this film and, of course, everything that it had going on. Let's get to shameless self-promotion outside of this podcast. Where can our listeners find the two of you on the interwebs? Let's start with you, Zan. Well, I am on the Twitters and on the Instas, the Instagram as Udinax19, and I'm also on Facebook just as myself, uh, Zan Sprouse. You can also find me on the Twitter machine and the Facebook at Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, the Twin Peaks podcast I do with Charles Skaggs. Perfect. And, and what about you, Rachel? Tell us a little bit about the, about the fantastic things you do and where, can, where folks can reach out to you on the interwebs. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, personally, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Beatles Blonde. Um, I also have a blog and personal YouTube channel, both called Styles and Smarts. So you can um, find those. And actually, the easiest way to find all those is um, from my podcast website, which is the fiveishfangirls.com. We have a page where we have little short bios about us, and I have links to all my personal stuff in there. Um, and then it also has the links to where we are. Um, as well, as far as the social media, so we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we're also on YouTube where um, we have uh, the podcast goes up, videos from conventions. Uh, we do, uh, we now have a series where we play Dungeons and Dragons, and three of us are newbies to Dungeons and Dragons. So if you want to hear uh, some folks, uh, you know, slowly figuring out the mechanics of how to play. Um, you can hear those episodes on our uh, on our uh, YouTube channel as well, um, and all that's linked on our website. So, 
Excellent. Well, I definitely will uh, will um, endorse that indeed, folks. Be sure to definitely check out, of course, Ghost with the Twin Peaks podcast and the Five-ish Fangirls. They are incredible, incredible podcasts indeed. When it comes to me, if superhero movies are your speed, I do also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast, which both Rachel and Zan have kindly been on as guest co-hosts. If you would like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, feel free to send me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We are also on social media, Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at High Darkness Pods, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. Also, for you country music lovers, I also host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show, where we play traditional country, today's country, and everything else in between. And for more about that, feel free to tune in to our and to tune in to visit our website for sure. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. When it comes to this podcast, everybody, should you wish to join us on one of our discussions, we will be opening the floor up to guests on social media. So our Twitter account, which is Oscars Gold. And where you can send us a direct message or on Facebook, where it also has gold standard, the Oscars podcast, or you can email us for a guest spot or just share your thoughts on a particular movie at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys and we also appreciate the follow and support. And speaking of things to come next time, we will be discussing the first sound film and musical to win an Oscar. And that will be Harry Beaumont's 1929 film, The Broadway Melody. So, ladies, I don't know about the two, but I had a blast on this first episode of ours. I'll definitely be looking forward to our next one. Any closing words on, on your behalves? Well, I'm, no, just look, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just looking forward to uh, working our way through this, through this list. Uh, I've got... Uh, I've got yeah, it's the, a good, it's a good entire, list of movies. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, most of them I have not seen, and a good number of them I've actually never even heard of, let alone seen. Um, but yeah, you know, the ones that I haven't seen, I'm in, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, finally checking those off the off the list and revisiting some favorites. And um, yeah, it should be interesting. I'm looking forward to the next one because I do love myself a, a musical. So. And what about you, Zan? Any any closing closing words on your part? Uh, yeah, I just I had a great time. Um, thank you guys. This was fun. And yeah, like I said, I'm looking forward to this list of movies. I was looking through the list. I'm like, oh, I can't wait till 1974. <laughs> it's gonna be wild. <laughs> just things but... like that where you're, you're like really, you know, you're like, oh, I can't, because I was looking at the list and I'm like, okay, that one I don't need to watch again. That one I don't need to watch again. That one I don't need. To... <laughs> There's so many that I could talk to you about right now without even rewatching it. I've seen them so many times. I love them that much. So um, it'll be really exciting to, t and I and I'm learning a lot. I love that I'm learning a lot about doing this research. Like. Um, like the Wampa Babies. I did not know who the Wampa Babies were <laughs> until I started researching for this movie. The Wampa standing, of course, for Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers, where they had like young female stars that they chose to be like the up and comers. And um, Jonah Ralston was one, Clara Bow was one, and so my other favorite silent movie actresses, like Mary Philbin, was one. And then other people that became cult heroes, like Faye Ray. It's like I did not know that was a, was a thing. So I'm I'm liking how much I'm learning that I'm looking up from these movies that I wouldn't necessarily know to have looked up that this stuff existed in the first place. So it's it's great to have this reason to learn to go back to film school and learn more about the golden age of Hollywood. So I'm very excited about that. 
Oh, amen to that indeed. And I think, you know, it'll be wonderful. We'll all be learning together, I reckon, you know, us, the listeners and everything. So we're, we definitely will, it'll definitely be a fun ride indeed. Well, that said, folks, we'll see you next time with the Broadway Melody. Until then, enjoy those movies. Ciao, my people.